you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been working through 2 Corinthians for it seems like about a year and a half, and we'll be, this is it. 2 Corinthians 12. I would encourage you, um, just on small groups, we do them a little different here. Um, I'm not going to give you really any type of I'll give you some direction. I'm not going to give you a ton of direction. The thing that, that we want to see happen in small groups is we want to see people connecting with, with each other uh, in such a way that they help each other become more like Jesus. And we don't really care about the context of that. Prayer group, Bible study, running around the mountain, whatever you want to do that helps you connect with other people is, is okay with us. So if there's something stirring in your heart, please um, talk to me and do try to come to the greenhouse if you can. Um, on the 27th. This is 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I think that last sentence is probably the most important sentence in the passage, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. But the place where I, I feel like we'll probably spend most of our time this morning is on this idea of a thorn in the flesh. But before we get there, let me talk a little bit about this idea of being weak when we're strong, because I do think that's probably the main theme in the passage. Last week we talked about reaping and sowing and how you reap what you sow and you reap how you sow. If you sow generously, then that's what you're going to reap. And we weren't just talking about money, we were talking about every area of life. And if you sow sparingly to the Lord, then you're going to reap sparingly. So I, I believe that's a huge key to how to live the Christian life. And this morning, this idea of when we're weak, we're strong, I think gets at... Um, probably the most important quality for Christians, and that's humility. I think even more than love, Christians need humility if you're going to do this thing over time. Even more than love, I would say humility is probably the most important thing. Let me hit you with a few verses. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 say this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, which is a quotation of Proverbs 3, 34. In Matthew 23, 12, Luke 14, 11, and Luke 18, 14, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Samuel 2, 8, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Psalm 18, 27, you save the humble, but bring no, low those whose eyes are haughty. Ezekiel 21, 26, the lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. Luke 1.52, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God makes it plain throughout Scripture that this, this is what he does. If he exalts the humble and he brings down the exalted or the proud. That's what he does. And it's not just explicitly stated, and there were more verses. That was just a sampling. The themes throughout Scripture, he chooses Moses to be the spokesperson for his people uh, to the most powerful man um, of his time, Pharaoh, and Moses stutters. He uses Mary, 15-year-old unwed mother, to be the mother of Jesus. This, the disciples are these, they're teenagers. They're 17, 18, 19 years old. Most of them are uneducated. Some of them are tax collectors. 
and he uses, he entrusts to them this radical message to turn the world upside down. Repeatedly throughout scripture, you'll see that Jesus picks the people kind of at the back of the line, not the people at the front of the line. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 kind of sums this up. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Simple statement. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. That's Get that. If you can get that in your heart, that's how you need to live. God's grace is his undeserved favor. Anything you get from God other than what you deserve is God's grace. What do you deserve? Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. So if you've ever sinned one time, then what you deserve is judgment and death. If you want anything from God other than judgment and death, then that's his grace. Anything you get other than judgment and death is God's grace. I would say that the fact that we're breathing, you can say that's God's grace. Because when you sin once, he rightfully could have said, well, that's it. The wages of sin is death, and you sin, so you're out. But he gives us time to repent. That's grace. The fact that we're all here, even after we've sinned, is an expression of God's grace. And so if you look at your life and you think, I want anything from God other than judgment or death, then what do I need to do? The Bible says very clearly you need to be humble because his grace comes to the humble. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if you want grace, undeserved favor, anything other than what you deserve, which is judgment or death, you need to cultivate humility. That's why I say I think it's the most important characteristic of a Christian. You can't even love apart from the grace of God. You can't start there. You've got to start here by saying, all I deserve is judgment and death, and I want more than that. And he says, well, if you want more than that, be humble, and you'll get it. I think there are three areas of life where we need to be humble. Our relationship with God, um, our relationship with ourselves that's our self-understanding, and our relationship with others. Humility, to me, is kind of gets a bad rap. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. It's not wailing on yourself and beating on yourself and saying, I'm a sorry person and, you know, I can't do anything right. It's, that's not humility. Humility is agreeing with God. Whatever God says about you, humility says, I agree with that. God's judgments about you, whatever those are, Humility says, I agree with those. I agree with what God says about me. And if whatever that is, if that's I'm a worm, then I agree with I'm a worm. And if that's I'm a prince, then that's I'm a prince. Whatever God says about me, humility says, that's true. And I'm going to live that way. Pride can either be puffing yourself up to be better than you are or kind of debasing yourself to be worse than you are. Because either of those extremes, you're disagreeing with God which is pride. You're saying, you know what, God, that's what you say, but that's actually not true. This is what's true about me. Anytime you disagree with God, that's pride, and God opposes the proud, and you don't want to be opposed by him because he doesn't lose. You want to humble yourself. You want to agree with him with what he says, and then you'll receive his grace. The first thing, which obviously is the most important, is our relationship with the Lord. Within the context of our relationship with God, humility says, I need you. That's basically it. When it comes to our relationship with God, to be humble before God is to recognize that I need him. Not that it would be nice, not that I want him, not that I can do anything for him, but I need him. 
there are times, um, Deuteronomy 8 is a, if you wanted to go back and look at that, there are times where God humbles us, and Deuteronomy 8 talks about God humbling the Israelites. And I believe there are people in this room who are going through that right now. The Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert, and God says the reason he did that was to humble them, to show them what was in their hearts, or to see what was in their heart, and to teach them to rely on him. You can't live the Christian life without those two things. You've got to know what's in your heart. We've said it a thousand times. What's in there is going to come out of there. And that's what you live out of. And if that thing is messed up, you're, you're in trouble because it's all going to come out. So he humbles us so we can see what's in there. We've talked before, when you're squeezed, it's like toothpaste. When you squeeze the toothpaste tube, toothpaste comes out. And when you're squeezed in life, what comes out of you? That's what's in your heart. And God will humble us. So we can see what's in there for the purpose of saying, whoa, I need God. I'm not quite as good as I thought I was. My heart is not quite as pure as I thought it was. And the second reason he humbles us is so that we can learn to rely on him. Um, Babies, when they're in utero, breathe oxygen through um, their umbilical cord. They don't breathe like we do, mouth, nose, taking oxygen. That's not what they do. They, They get it. Somehow through all the pregnancy things. That's how they're breathing. Through the amniotic fluid and liquid and mother's thing, placenta. All of those things that are not appropriate to talk about in church. That's where all of that, that's how they're breathing. And when the baby is born, which is also not appropriate to talk about in church, most of them start breathing on their own. There's a reflex and they, and they take that first breath. And that's what they've got to do. But some of them don't. And what does the doctor do? They pop them on the back to get them to cry so they'll breathe. The baby needs to breathe. The baby needs oxygen. And apart from that, the baby is going to die. And so the doctor causes some pain for the baby to make the baby breathe. Sometimes God does the same thing for us. Reality is you need his grace or you will die. That's it. Your life apart from the grace of God is misery and destruction in this life and in the life to come. And he knows that as plain as day. And so sometimes what he'll do, because sometimes we don't get it on our own, is he'll pop us. Not because he's got a big ego, not to flex his muscle. It's not a power thing. It's to say, breathe. You need my grace. If you want to live, you've got to breathe. Sometimes we get that on our own, and sometimes we don't. And I feel confident that there are people in this room this morning, and you are... 40 years in the wilderness, and you're wondering what is going on. Why do bad things keep happening to me? How come I'm not experiencing the love and grace of God? And this is not a criticism of you at all, because I have no idea what's going on in your life. I just felt like the Lord said, he's humbling you to show you what's in your heart and to teach you to rely on him. He's popping you on the back so you breathe. He opposes the proud, and if you're proud, he will oppose you. doesn't matter how cute you are. He will oppose you if you're proud and you don't want to live that way. And he's trying to bring you low. He's trying to humble you, not to show you who's boss, because he knows you need his grace to live. And until you get that, you're headed down a dark road and it doesn't get any brighter. And so he is, you are right. You're in a bad place. And if you wondered if the the Lord brought you there, yes. But it's not to punish you. It's to get you to breathe because you're not getting it right now. We've got to get this thing with the Lord. He opposes the proud. He gives grace 
to the humble. If you want to receive his grace, anything other than what you deserve, which is judgment and death. You've got to humble yourself, which before him means recognize I've got a need for God. I need him. And if you don't recognize that you have a need for him, he's going to show you. And sometimes that's not fun. And he's not doing it because he hates you. He's doing it because he loves you. We've talked before. He'll take any amount of temporary pain for eternal life. He'll allow you to suffer now if that will prepare you for eternity in the future. He will discipline you temporarily if that discipline will wake you up to get you ready for the next forever with him. Second thing, our relationship with ourselves. This is our self-understanding. Romans 12, 3 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Again, humility is agreeing with what God says about you. So you need to know what God says about you. The Bible's full of things that God says about you. Before you're a Christian, or when you're not in Christ, when you're outside, this is what God says about you. You're rebellious, you're sinful, you're wretched, you're miserable, and you're going to hell. That's what he says about everyone who's outside of a relationship with him through Jesus. Once you're in Christ, he says you're forgiven, you're holy, you're chosen, you're blessed, you're his, and you're going to heaven. You can spend forever with him. Both of those things are equally true of us, and they're equally true of everyone. Everyone outside of Christ, that's the label. Miserable, wretched, wicked, rebellious, sinful, going to hell. Everyone who's in Christ, forgiven, holy, chosen, blessed, child of God, forever with him. Both of those things are equally true, and we've got to get both of those things. The problem for a lot of us, I think, is we fall one way or the other. Some of us, we're kind of losers. I don't, not nice to be called a loser in church, but some of us are. That's how we think about ourselves. We choose to disagree with God when he says we're a new creation. We say, well, actually, no, I'm not, because I still have remnants of my former self. I still see those things, so I must not be a new creation. God says in Christ we're forgiven, and we say, well, I'm not, I must not be totally forgiven because I still remember all that stuff, or I screwed up huge in the past, and so we don't live forgiven. Or God says, you know, you're mine because of Jesus' work on the cross, not based on your performance. And we say, well, I disagree with that. I have to prove that I love you, and you've gotta, I've got to earn your love back because every relationship I've ever had, that's how it's been. We're, we're kind of losers. We think less of ourselves than we should. We're Christians, but we still identify primarily with our identity before we were in Christ. We haven't allowed God to make us new creations, at least not in our mind. We're disagreeing with him, which is pride. We're disagreeing. He says you're new, and we say, well, not really. He says we're forgiven, and we say, not totally. He says I love you, and we say, I'm not sure. We're disagreeing with God. We're not humble. We can't receive his grace, and we actually become what we believe. If you continually oppose God or are proud, proud, you don't receive his grace, and so you're going to become what you believe. You're going to become a weak, ineffective, kind of poor-mouthed Christian because that's what you believe about yourself. You're disagreeing with God. You're cutting yourself off from his grace, and so there's not a whole lot he can do with you. And some of you are wired that way. You kind of have that negatively programmed flesh. How about that for a fancy term? You tend to think less of yourself than you should. You tend, if something goes wrong, you blame you. You're prone maybe to 
periods of sadness or depression, you um, don't think that you can do a whole lot. You don't really have a good feel for what you're good at and not good at. You know very well what you're not good at. You don't know very well what you're good at. You don't have a lot of confidence in your ability to accomplish things, get things done. If that's you, that you have negatively oriented flesh, that's kind of that loser mentality. And the, the thing for you is to realize in Christ you're a new creation. Humility says, I'm going to agree with what God says about me. And what he says about you is, whatever about those things, whatever happened that brought you to that point, okay, you're a new creation now that you're in Christ. You're holy, you're chosen, you're dearly loved, you're a son or daughter of God. Some of us are the other way. We have, we're winners. We have positively programmed or positively oriented flesh. If something goes wrong, we know it's not our fault because we're good. We don't make mistakes. We're not good at saying we're sorry. We're not good at admitting we're wrong. Some of us are real good at showing you where you're wrong, but we're not so good at us seeing it. We're very confident. We know what our strengths are. We know what we're good at. We're very confident in our abilities. We might even say our abilities are from the Lord. And yeah, but at the end of the day, we don't agree with God that we should not lean on our own understanding and that we should trust him because I got this thing figured out. At the end of the day, we don't agree with him when he says, your heart's wicked because I've never really done anything that bad, so I must be okay. At the end of the day, I don't agree with him that my righteousness or your righteousness is filthy rags because a lot of people like my righteousness. And it seems to be getting me pretty far in life. And that's pride as well. I'm disagreeing with what God says about me. Or you're disagreeing with what God says about you. And most everyone is one or the other. You either are negatively programmed or positively programmed. You tend to, you might be really close to the line, but you're either more winner or more loser in your own brain. And you just need to figure out which one you are, recognize it for what it is, and say, you know what? That's pride. If you think too highly of yourself or if you think too lowly of yourself, it doesn't matter because it's disagreeing with God. What God says about you is yes. If you're not in Christ, all of those bad things, those are true. And if you're in Christ, all of these good things are true, but they're true because you're in Christ, not because you happen to be a great guy or because you got you were first in your class or started varsity, whatever. None of that stuff, that's not what makes you new. What makes you new is your relationship with the Lord. And all that to say, when it comes to how you think about yourself, you need to agree with what God says about you. Otherwise, you're cutting off his grace into your life and you'll become what you believe, which is not what you want at the end of the day. You want to become what he says about you. And he will oppose everything that disagrees with that. The last one we're not going to talk about very much, our relationship with others. Philippians 1.23 says we're to consider others better ourselves. Y'all all know this. You start learning this when you're like two or three years old. The world doesn't revolve around you. That's the one area in our society where we actually value humility. We don't value it in any other area, but when it comes to how you treat other people, we want to say, think about other people. It's not all about you. We say that all the time. We always say it's not about you when what you're doing affects me. I'm not quite so certain to say that when I'm getting my way, but you get that. That's the one area of our life where we value or at least try to teach people to be humble, which is ironic. Because I think probably the reason we do that is because people like that. <laughs> so we get praised for being humble, which feeds our ego, which is not humility anyway. So you get that. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking on If you can get 
If you can cultivate humility with the Lord and humility within your own self-understanding, agreeing with what God says about you, the stuff with other people, will it'll take care of itself. It'll flow out of that. And if you try to do the other people thing first, it's not going to work because your motives are bad. You're not going to be able to pull it off because you're cut off from God. If you try to do that and you're trying to be humble before other people but you don't really know what God says about you, it's just a people-pleasing. or Don't do that. Start with God, then look at yourself, and then move to others. So that's, to me, the most important part about this passage. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Stamp that on your forehead so you see it every morning when you go to the mirror because that's how you need to live your life. You live your life humbly, agreeing with what God says. I need you, God, and what you say about me is the truth. You're going to go a long way. And if you don't, you're not going to go very far at all. And you might find yourself 40 years in a desert with God trying to pop you on the back to say, you need my grace, and you're not getting it. Thorn in the flesh. This has bothered me all week as I've thought about this idea of a thorn in the flesh. I don't, nobody, first of all, knows what the thorn is. Like, we're not going to figure that out. Nobody knows. I read somewhere there's over 200 different theories on what the thorn in Paul's flesh, what he meant. If you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, then you have to believe that it was intentionally vague. Paul could have just as easily said, this was what I had. My thorn was this. But he doesn't. He calls it a thorn and then he moves on. And never tells us what it is, so whatever. We don't know. We're not going to figure it out. If you care, probably the top two theories are there was a group of people who opposed him. They were called Judaizers. And they were telling Gentiles they had to become Jews before they became Christians. And they went around and they caused problems for him all over the place. All the letters you read, if you read through Acts or his letters, you'll see that there's this group of Jews that follow him around. Everywhere he goes, they try to get people to become Jews first, which for men meant they had to be circumcised. For everybody, it meant you had to eat kosher food, follow the Sabbath, follow all the Old Testament rules, and you had to do that. If you want to be a Christian, that doesn't seem like a big, big deal to us. Huge deal back then because then grace is not grace. You're not a Christian because of your relationship with Jesus. You're a Christian because of your relationship with Jesus and all of these rules that you're keeping. It's not. It totally compromises the gospel. So it was a huge deal. Some people think that was the thorn in his flesh. It was this group of people that were giving him a hard time. And there's some biblical evidence from that. Some people believe it was some type of physical condition. Some people think he was epileptic. I don't know where they get that, but some people think he was epileptic. Some people think he was prone to depression. A lot of people think it was something with his eyes. I, that's kind of my thinking. He talks sometimes about he writes letters in a big hand, which makes you think he can't see. He had other people write his letters for him. In Galatians 4, he talks about, he says, y'all would have pulled your eyes out and given them. To me, if you could, obviously that's an expression, but maybe it was because something was wrong with his eyes. He had been blinded when he became a Christian, so maybe he was um, had an eye problem, but the bottom line is none of us know, and it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. The question for me is, do you have a thorn in the flesh, and do I have a thorn in the flesh? And I think that's where I've gotten so bogged down this week is really trying to figure out how do you answer that question do you or I have a thorn in the flesh? Because it seems like if we do, then God's answer to Paul is the same as his answer to us. I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. Stop asking. That's what God said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's implied there is stop asking. I'm not taking it away. You've got a thorn in the flesh, and you're going to 
whatever it is, whether it's these guys that have given you a hard time or it's you can't see or he got beat up all the time, maybe he had a bad back, I have no idea what was going on with him. But God said he wasn't going to fix it. And so I wonder for us, do, do any of us have thorns in the flesh? Because it could be that then what God's saying to us is, I'm not going to fix it. Stop asking. Which would, in a sense, be a relief because then we would know, okay, to mark that off the list. He's not going to fix it. But I, I don't know. And I, I'm going to talk for a few minutes and I'm going to come back to I don't know. It's between you and the Lord whether or not you have a thorn in the flesh. I can't say that for you and no one else can say that for you. Paul had a revelation straight from God where God said, I'm not going to fix it. And if you have a word like that from the Lord, then that's a thorn in the flesh and you've got one. And you can go along your merry way with that. But I wonder how many of us, we see that and it gives us cover to pull back from what God wants to do in our life. Most of us don't live in the same world that Paul lived in. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says this. This is just right after he's talked about this thorn in the flesh thing. He says, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. That's Paul's world, signs, wonders, and miracles. Just a few pulled out. The way he became a Christian, he's going down the road and he sees this bright light, hears a voice from heaven, knocks him down, goes blind, hears Jesus talking. That didn't happen for me. Maybe that didn't happen for you either. If you read through the book of Acts, he was once, when he was doing missionary work, he was on this island of Cyprus, and there was a guy there named Elimas, I think his other name was Bar-Jesus, and he was a false prophet, and he was deceiving someone. Paul cursed the fella, and he went blind. He said, you're not going to see for a while, and the guy went blind. Anybody have that? He was in jail one time, and he was praying, and there was an earthquake, and it shook the jailhouse so much, his chains and the chains of everyone else fell off, and all the doors flew open. What is that? He was in Ephesus, and people brought him handkerchiefs and aprons, and he would touch them, and they would go back and lay them on sick people, and the people would get well. You maybe have seen that on TV. These are verified. People kept bringing him this stuff. They wouldn't have brought it to him if it wasn't working. And he didn't promise them any money for it either, or ask for any money. In Troas, Paul raised a guy from the dead. There's a guy sitting, sounds like maybe he was sitting on a windowsill, and Paul talked for a really long time. It was midnight. The dude fell out and died, which is bad PR if you're trying to build a church. Paul goes outside and raises the guy from the dead. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he talks about this. He talks in the third person. It makes it sound like it's not him, but it is him. This, that he has this, had this vision where he was caught up to the third heaven, which in Jewish thought is the highest heaven. You've got heaven, which is the sky, and then the second heaven was outer space, and the third heaven is where God is. And he says, I saw things I can't even tell you about in this third heaven. I mean, that was his life. He lived in this supernatural world where God routinely worked. He saw signs and wonders and miracles, I think, very regularly if you read through his letters and through the book of Acts. That was his world. So to me, if I believe he had an eye problem. If he had an eye problem, which would have been a big deal back then, there wasn't lens crafters around the corner. I mean, there was no, you didn't have any help. 
And if your job was walking around and writing letters and you couldn't see very well, that'd be a, an inconvenient for sure. He says he was tormented by it. So if that's his condition, of course he's going to ask the Lord to heal him. Why wouldn't he? And it says he prayed three times. I don't know if that meant he prayed three one-sentence prayers or he fasted for two weeks praying about it three different times. It doesn't say what he did. But I know he didn't say, well, God, if you wouldn't mind and if you're not busy and if it's your will, if you could fix my eyes or remove this thorn in the flesh, that'd be great. But if you can't get around to it today, that's okay too. He didn't do that. He pleaded for God to fix it with every expectation that God would. And I believe he would have kept going. He would have, however many times it took, he was going to go back to that well because he had seen God work. If people, if you touch someone's handkerchief and they take that handkerchief and put it on someone who's sick and they get well, you're going to believe that God can heal your eyesight. Why would you not? If you've raised someone from the dead, then what's the big deal about not having 20-20 vision or whatever it was? That Paul, why would you not think that God could fix it? Of course he did. And he was going to stay on it, I believe, until God did something. And so God cut him off and said, stop asking. I'm not going to fix it. But that's not where we live. Most of us need an excuse to go after the Lord, not an excuse to pull back. And that's what God was giving Paul. He was giving him a reason to pull off of this. He was saying, listen, just don't. And that thorn in the flesh, definitely, he says the reason he had it was so he would not become conceited. It ties into humility, which is what we just talked about. He had this thorn to keep him humble because he had, he had seen stuff nobody's seen. Literally, no one has seen. And he'd done stuff that most people have never done. I don't know if that describes you or not. It doesn't describe me. I don't really need to worry about becoming conceited because I have this great spiritual life. And I don't know if you do either. So probably, if I've got some condition in my life and it's chronic, it's probably not a thorn in the flesh. It's probably just an area where I hadn't really gone after the Lord and asked him to fix it. We have this kind of disconnect between what we believe in our brains and what we expect in our life. We're in a severe drought. If we prayed right now for rain, I guarantee every one of us would intellectually believe God can make it rain. And I bet none of us would take an umbrella to work tomorrow. We just wouldn't. We don't think that way. I have an astigmatism in my right eye. My cornea is shaped like a football and not a basketball. Let me tell you how many times I've pleaded with the Lord to take it away. About zero. I've asked him to put vision on my insurance plan before, but I'm not. <laughs> I got a prescription for that. It's not a, it doesn't cross my mind. I got a headache, I take Advil. That's what it's there for. Our kids get sick, we give them try a minute. It's what we do. And you maybe are the, of course God can heal. Of course he can. Of course he can make my eyes better. Or, what, yes. I believe all of those things. I just don't expect him to do any of it. Most of the time. And if there's a time where I really work up, the whatever it takes to work up, to pray and be passionate and go for this thing, one time. And if he doesn't do it right then, I move on. It must be a thorn in the flesh. It's my cross to carry. I just got to deal with this thing. That's what we do. We give ourselves excuses to pull back because there's this huge disconnect between what we believe and what we expect. At least what we think and what we expect. Maybe we don't really believe it or we would expect it. Paul didn't have that. 
Paul needed God to say, pull up. Most of us don't need God to say, pull up. We need God to say, go for it. And so that's what I would say to you. You might have a thorn in the flesh. And if you do, then you need to yes. You got it, and you can put that card in your wallet and say, this is who I'm going to, this is it. The Lord has told me he's not going to fix this situation. And his grace is sufficient, and this thorn keeps me humble before the Lord. It lets me remember. It's a constant reminder how much I need him, which opens me up to receive his grace. That is wonderful if the Lord has said that to you. If he hasn't, if you're just assuming that this is your thorn in the flesh, if you're just assuming maybe God's not going to fix this, or I know how it is, nobody wants to get their hopes up and then be disappointed. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to live a life of frustration. And that might be what you think you're setting yourself up for if you said, I'm really going to go after the Lord about this condition, whatever it is that's chronic in your life, an area where you haven't seen a lot of change, an area where you haven't really seen the Lord move. It's difficult to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-engage the Lord. It's a lot easier just to shut that door and say, I'm going to live with that and it's okay. But if there's $100 worth of healing on the table, most of us have cashed about $1.25. There's a whole lot more that the Lord has available for all of us. Easy for me to say because I'm not the one hurting. A whole lot more that the Lord has available for all of us than what we've appropriated into our life. And if you've got some chronic condition, there's, there's something going on relationally, physically, spiritually, or emotionally. There's some thorn in your flesh and it torments you, I would say, unless and until you hear God say, pull up, just like Paul did, I'm not going to fix it. My grace is is sufficient for you. You're going to live with this. Unless and until you hear that, the default posture is God makes all things new. All things are possible with God, and he can fix this thing too. Most of us don't need an excuse to pull up. I don't know, maybe you do. I don't. I need an excuse to push the throttle. I need somebody to push me in that direction. And that's what God is saying, I think, to us as a body. You don't need to pull up apart from this word. It's kind of like all the lights are green unless they're red. You assume green. You assume God's going to fix it. He wants to fix it. This doesn't line up with abundant light. Unless he tells you otherwise, you need to keep going for it. Let's pray. Um, I guess we talked really about two completely different things, or mildly different at least today. So um, the thing I feel strongest about is I really do believe there's um, at least one person here who's been wandering around for a long time, and you're wondering what's going on, and I think what the Lord would say to you is he's trying to humble you. He's trying to bring you low, not because he hates you, but because he loves you, because you need to breathe, and you haven't been breathing. You haven't realized uh, your need for the Lord, and if that's you, I would encourage you. We'll have ministry teams in the back to go and let those guys uh, pray for you. There's nothing magic about anyone praying for you, but sometimes it's just good to have other people agree. If there's any other needs that you have in your life, that either relate to what we talked about or don't, we'll have some guys in the back to pray for you. And again, there's nothing magic. It's just sometimes nice to have people agree with you. 
in prayer. So I'm going to pray, and then um, Bo and these guys are going to lead us in worship for a minute, and you can respond however you want. Y'all can stand up, please. Father, I do thank you um, that you give us grace at all because you don't have to, and that's why it's grace. And Lord, I, I pray for us individually and corporately, Lord, that um, we would be humble. God, I pray you would never have to oppose us, again, personally or corporately, God, that we would choose to agree with you and what you say on every issue. And God, when it comes to these thorns in the flesh, Lord, I wanna, we want to agree with you on that as well. And if you're saying, pull up, you're going to live with this, God, I pray you would speak that very clearly to the individuals in this room. If you're saying, this is, this is a condition that you're going to carry for a while, I pray they would know that in their heart from you and that would not cause turmoil for them. The enemy would not be able to beat them up because they don't have enough faith to see answered prayer, but for the rest of us, God, who maybe have pulled up prematurely, who've given up on some area of our life where, you're, where you have more for us, God, I pray that you would re-energize us this morning, Father, by your spirit. It's hard to get our hopes up to not see you work. And I pray this morning, God, we would begin to see you work, that you would move, God, that you would get off your throne, you would work on behalf of the people in this room, some of whom have been praying for years to see things happen in certain areas. God, I pray that they would see your arm outstretched on their behalf today and tomorrow and the next day. God, we need your grace. And I pray, Father, that you would pour it out richly on us now. In Jesus' name.